Hey there, this is Michael Rocco, and you're listening to Our Best Interests, a podcast dedicated to pursuing an examined life following childhood trauma. We'll explore the painful and the joyous parts of life. The focus is on the adoptee experience, but general lessons about humanity are at the center of our explorations. We'll drop new episodes as guests come by to see us. There are many interesting characters with interesting stories in our community, so we're sure to learn a few things and enjoy ourselves a bit too. Now get ready to take a deep dive into the core issues of self, family, and society from the adoptee perspective. Tell me one more story. Can you go all the way back to Richmond around then? I think we should walk away I saw you through the glass door And I was acting on my best behavior Trying to navigate us home Hi, I'm Michael Rocco. Today, we're joined by Dr. E.K. Trimberger, Professor Emerita, of Women's and Gender Studies at Sonoma State University, adoptive mother and author of Creole Son, an adoptive mother untangles nature and nurture, published by LSU Press in 2020. Our guiding adage today is the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Kay Trimberger's memoir recounts transracial adoptive motherhood using insights gained through the scientific study of behavioral genetics. With this body of work, she revisits some inflection points in raising her son, Marco, a biracial adoptee born to Creole and Cajun parents as a single white professional woman who herself was raised in an upper middle-class family. The key challenge Kay seeks to better understand is the development and persistence of Marco's addiction and what she might have done differently. What are the limitations of her influence as non-biological kin? In the case of her son, Marco, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, hearkens a legacy of addiction. And we'll learn that although the adage may be fitting, the story is not so simple. Now, Kay, uh, what year was it that you came to meet Marco? It was January 1981, and I was 40 years old. I had a PhD. I'd always been single, although I'd had lots of boyfriends. And and I was a tenured professor at that time of sociology at Sonoma State University. And I lived in a communal household in Berkeley. It was a very... Uh, it wasn't a very radical uh, communal household. It was the third one I'd lived in. And in this case, it was a couple and myself and we owned the house. I owned one floor, they owned two floors. It was a tenants in common. And we were all, you know, they, they weren't even married at the time. And we were all single and it worked very well while we were single. But once I had a child and then nine months later, they had a biological child 
it didn't work anymore. And it ended when Marco was four years old in a hostile divorce. And during that time, it, there seemed he was uh, subject to some inappropriate sexuality when he was three and a half. It's unclear if it was, it's unclear what it was. But later when I was writing this book and I did more research, um, I'm sure something happened. It's not clear it was in the house or in a, in a, in a daycare center or whatever. But once we got our own house and I had a network of other single mothers who had kids, they were all white, but at any rate, um, he was pretty happy and I was happy until he was 11. Um, and when he was in middle school, or in this case, it was junior high, it was seventh and eighth grade, he, you know, it turned out he was very smart. He had done well in this private school. He was good at everything and he had lots of interests. And then when he was in seventh grade and more in eighth grade, he's in a public school, he started, his grades started going downhill. And I didn't know what the issue was. Um, I was, didn't know about substance abuse. I was a substance abuse virgin, as my friend said. The only experience I had was a distant cousin who had, was an alcoholic, but nobody yeah. else in my immediate or extended family seemed to have drug or alcohol problems. Mm -hmm. um, so it took me, I thought, you know, it was just teenage acting out and teenage this and that. And for many of his friends, it was, but for him, it was heavier. And it wasn't until he was in his mid twenties that I really recognized that addiction was an ongoing problem. And he, in his afterwards says, that's when he knew when he experienced real addiction. Before that, he thought he could start and stop. Now, whether he could have, I don't know. But, um, and I sort of at that time believed in the kind of theory of psychological loss. And I thought if I helped him find his birth parents, that that would then solve the addiction problem. Um, and, you know, because he needed that. And he had always said he wanted to find his birth parents and I'd always been very open and it was a private adoption. And I had a picture of the birth mother. And when he was four, I got the name of the birth father, although it turned out later it was wrong. But at any rate, um, it wasn't hard to find them. And I hired, a, you know, a finder for $200. And in a day, she had found the birth mother and the birth mother was really happy to know him and to talk to him. And then um, they planned to get together and she said she would help him find the birth father who she hasn't seen in 25 years. So they had a very good reunion, which he talks a lot about in, in the afterward to the book. And, but it turned out that both of his birth parents, well, they had all kinds of admirable qualities, different ones for each. Um, and the birth father who's neither he nor his family knew about Marco, but he was also very welcoming. And the birth mother had told her three other children about him 10 years earlier. And then Marco, and they were all biracial. And then uh, his father had various children who he introduced to Marco. And so he had, and they were all Creole. So he had all of these half siblings that were also of color. So that I think was very important. But he found out that both of his birth parents had suffered with addiction for most of their lives. And 
I didn't know that. Um, he didn't know that. He had never met them. They had never met him since five days old. And um, and they even liked the same drug. And when they got together, uh, when he was 26 and they were in their 30s and 40s, um, they all used together. And which, And then he told me a lot about his earlier drug use, that he'd had his first cigarette puff when he was eight years old, and then maybe his first marijuana puff at the same time. And then in junior high, he was actually getting marijuana from his white friends and teaching his black friends about it. And uh, and that you got drugs in Berkeley from the white upper class kids, not from the black kids in, in the low, lower class or lower middle class. So, um, and then later he was selling drugs and et cetera. Um, he was always a very careful person in temperament. And so he was, he stopped selling drugs at a certain point. Um, but after he met his biological parents and saw them in Louisiana and went back a second time, I went with him once to meet them and talk to them. And then I went another time by myself to take a course on Creole and Cajun culture at the University of Louisiana in Lafayette and went and met them again by myself. And then I kept, he kept in touch with a half sister on the father's side and I kept in touch with the father's wife at the time who had no biological relationship to Marco but who really was very family oriented. So, um, and then when he came back from Louisiana, I got him finally to go. Well, he he was been in drug rehab various times, but when he was in his mid thirties, I got him into a uh, an intern. What do you call it? An internal in, in, inpatient. Inpatient, right? Yeah. Drug rehab for six weeks, and then he went in for nine months to a clean and sober living situation. Um, but I'm not sure that it lasted, um, but he's certainly better off now, but I think he still has addiction issues. Kay, would you be so kind as to read your selection for us? Because I believe nurture was all important, I thought erroneously that a child just picks up the parent's habits. I was organized, so Marco would be too. I worked hard, so Marco would too. I liked to cook, so he would be a good cook. Only the latter turned out to be true. I gave no thought to any impact of Marco's genetic heritage. I made excuses for Marco. Didn't all kids lie sometimes? When we visited my prosperous cousin and her doctor husband on the East Coast, couldn't jealousy explain why nine-year-old Marco stole some coins from her son's collection? What if he dropped one activity to try something new? Wasn't it a blessing to be good at so many things? When he dropped piano and took up the saxophone, wasn't playing sax in the middle school band better suited to his extroverted nature? I presumed um, that as Marco matured, he would decide what interests he most liked and then he would pursue them in an organized way as I had. I didn't think I should, nor did I want to impose my academic interests and temperament temperament on him. I would not be like my parents who had a plan for my life that I had to fight. 
when I told my parents at age 17 that I wanted a career, they decided that home economics would parallel that of my father in animal science. I knew that wasn't right for me, but since I knew no women whose life I could emulate, I went along and thus spent my first college year from 1958 to 59 at Cornell in the College of Home Economics, now Human Ecology. I hated it. I liked the domestic life my mother provided, although I didn't want that, but this was not the career to which I aspired. At 18, planning an efficient kitchen or learning why biscuits rise was not the intellectual life I craved. So in my sophomore year with my parents' reluctant consent, I transferred to the College of Arts and Sciences and became a chemistry major. I had loved my first year chemistry course with a famous professor and science was more acceptable to my practical parents than the humanities or social science. By my senior year, I I knew I had made another mistake, hating lab work, finding science theory too abstract and deciding medical school was not for me. I know I wanted to go to graduate school, but I didn't yet know my career goal. Could I be a professor? My parents had encouraged me to be a teacher, but not a college teacher and I didn't know any women faculty. I applied to graduate school in international and comparative education, inspired by the summer I had spent in Honduras as a Cornell, on a Cornell student project, and by my two teenage years of living in the Philippines. My father was part of a team of agriculture professors from Cornell who in the mid-1950s helped to rebuild the University of the Philippines College of Agriculture. Maybe I could have some Peace Corps related career. After receiving my master's degree in education from the University of Chicago, I switched again, this time to sociology. All these alternatives and degree programs didn't indicate frivolity, but reflected my seriousness. I was now committed to becoming a professor, but to succeed, I had to find the right field. Finally, I had. Sociology suited my broad and changing interests. I thought Marco would follow the same pattern of deciding which of his many interests to follow toward a career or settled work life and without my interference. Wasn't my approach even more important for an adopted youth? Later in his mid twenties, Marco said he wished I had a family business he could have entered, indicating that he didn't like choices. Only later through my study of behavioral genetics did I think about how my nurturing might be related to Marco's troubled teenage and adult life. All behavioral geneticists believe that parents in the family environment make a difference, but they question how much of a difference. To find out why children in the same family develop differently, behavioral geneticists study children in middle-class adoptive families. If there's good enough parenting in an average environment for child development, behavioral geneticists have concluded that whether parents are strict or lenient, involved a lot or a little, doesn't make much difference in how the child turns out as an adult. They agree that the effect of genes is more important than being raised by particular parents. Behavioral geneticists postulate that genetic inheritance explains 40 to 50% of the difference between children raised in the same family. The environment in the household and neighborhood appears to account for only 10 to 25% of the variance between siblings in personality, cognitive abilities, and psychological problems. The remainder is, is unexplained in scientific studies, which have to allow for chance and for the limitation in tools to measure complex components of human development.
Within the 25%, I wanted to figure out what difference I made as a parent. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, thank you for uh, for the reading and for all your work on the uh, on the book. Um, you know, looking back at the the 20th century, there certainly were no uh, shortages of of errors um, in the whole nature nurture thing. You know, um, dating back to you know eugenics, um, and then it seemed to be you know almost a complete uh, pendulum swing. You know, to this this concept of you know, that you could control someone's behavior through full nurture. And, um, you know, looking back at it now, you know, and, and having children of my own, I know they kind of come out with their own mind. Um, did you sense that, you know, some of your training was, or your teachings, your nurturing was um, resisted by Marco or it just, um, what were your sense on his his reactions to it? Did he seem like a rebellious child or was he mostly cooperative, you know, what, what kind of sense did you feel, you know, in return from him? Well, he was pretty cooperative until he was in junior high school when I found out he lied a lot to me. And, you know, as I said, I was not, I mean, he said as an adult that he, I should have been stricter with him. And, um, but when I was, I don't know. I mean, it was hard as a single parent to be caring and strict. But um, but I also, but then when things started going wrong, I blamed myself completely. Uh, and that I must have been really messing up because he, you know, when I finally, you know, so he was rebel. He wasn't super rebellious as a teenager. He always went to school. Um, but that's where he dealt drugs. And he always, until eighth grade, he always did very well. He was very smart. And even then he got into some private schools and uh, as for high school and went to a Catholic school and went to four different high schools. So, but I, then when I, but when he didn't really meet my expectations. I completely blamed myself. I didn't think anything about genetic heritage or whatever. I thought, you know, I'm not an adequate mother. What I like is these longitudinal behavioral genetic studies that show that as that where they follow, where they test the birth mother when she gives up the child, usually around in her late teens, and then they test the adoptive mother, and then they test the adoptee. And by the time the adoptee is 16, 17 years old, about the same time that they tested the birth mother, by then he is much more like the birth mother than like the adoptive parents. He has almost, he or she has almost nothing in common. In terms of psychological, these quantitative variables, obviously, there's attachment to the adoptive parents and some of the values and lifestyle, et cetera, uh, that's there. And it, usually when, as an adult, a adoptee finds the birth parents, they end up going back to the adoptive parents to live, et cetera. Not always, um, but as Marco said at one point um, in an interview that he did by himself, he wished he could have lived both lives you know, with me and then with his in Berkeley and then with his birth parents also. And I, since I wrote the book, have inter interviewed several 
people, couples, one a gay male couple and one a heterosexual couple who have done this, who have kept in contact with the birth families and, and try to, in both cases, they have two kids, in both cases, they're black, and they're both cases, they're white, and they've really had ongoing relationships with birth families. And so their kids, in some ways, have been able to live both lives. And I think it's very good. It's very good for everybody. I also think it's hard. Family life in general is hard. I think it's a bit idealistic. Not everybody will be able to do it. But I end my book with saying that having extended families, which is different than just plain open adoption, but having ongoing contact and having, um, you know, I mean, there's, it's clear that the adoptive parents when they're young are the parents, but these are like aunts and uncles and cousins and black and white. And, you know, it's hard because you're going to cross oftentimes class and race boundaries, but if it can be done, it's very good for everybody, for the adoptive parents, for the birth parents, for and especially for the adoptees. I, I got along great with my family, you know, I believe, um, but I don't believe my parents would have gotten, my, my, adop, my adoptive parents would have gotten along with my birth parents at all, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, I mean, I guess I struggle sometimes because I, I am very different from my parents, but you know, I think I've also learned to kind of chameleonize myself in an environment. You know, when most of my Italian family, I can be Italian, but you know, um, intellectually, when I speak with my with my adult my my birth mother, I mean, we're much more on par. You know, so that's it's. Um, I I think that's a that's a difficult generality to make. Um, I, I know, and you know, personally, that would be a disaster with my family. My my family would be so defensive about it. And, um, you know, my birth mother would be more open to it, but I just think the dialogue would be just comical almost. And we have to be careful with um, not overstating the importance of genetic right, um, right uh, uh, inheritance, that there is widely recognized trauma associated with relinquishment and Reacclimating to new environments, whether that be, and I know not in Marco's case, but for many in foster care, having different handlers and eventually the adoptive mother being hopefully the final caregiver. But those are adjustments that an infant needs to make. And the dominant paradigm is, is one of uh, what you term as psychological loss. So how do you, do you at all frame Marco's um, pathway uh, in terms of psychological loss, or have you decided that genetics is a better explanation in this case? Well, behavioral genetics, which is also stresses the environment. It isn't just genetics and it isn't deterministic and it's how genetics and the environment influence each other. But, um, you know, I think somebody who has been in foster care and is a little bit older and has experienced various handlers, but that's different than an infant who just goes at five days old. And Jack also from, you know, I've read part of the book he's writing and he seemed to get along great in his Italian family as, an, as a young child. So I think, I think it's not complete. I don't, I think, but then as the kid who doesn't experience that much trauma, just with the placement, 
as they get older, and particularly if it's transracial or transnational adoption, that there is a sense that they don't have the same ethnicity, that they've lost their ethnicity, that they've lost their racial heritage. So there's that kind of loss. So there's different kinds of losses, not just sort of this trauma of the being adopted and that all adoptees have that trauma in common. I just don't think so. I mean, I think there's very many different experiences and there's different experiences of different adoptees. And I don't think you can generalize about trauma. I think you can generalize about loss, but those losses and when they occur and how they occur are very different for different individuals. And there's some, many adoptees, in fact, who are happy with their adoptive family, don't want to search. Now, they, I think they also have some issues and some losses, but I don't think there's some universal primal wound that affects all adoptees. I, I just don't. Have you um, listened to uh, Paul Sunderland's video and um, lecture on addiction and, um, and adoption? Um, yeah. For me, um, you know, he makes a very strong point for you know, some amount of relinquishment trauma. Um, and it's, it's not, you know, you're right. There's a, there's a thousand different, you know, millions of, you know, infinite different experiences for that infant. Um, and we talked about this a little bit that, you know, just that, that infant child who, you know, was reared in the womb, you know, hearing the mother's heartbeat and the warmth and the electricity, you know, and then, you know, that they can hear the voice and recognize sounds and sights that, you know, to suddenly be born and then, you know, be taken from that into this cold, dry world, you know, of, you know, bright lights in a nursery. And, you know, you know, I had, I think, a total of maybe 15 minutes of contact with my birth mother. And I just would imagine like that whole trauma of, you know, being squeezed through the birth canal. I mean, like that infant does have a neurologic um, has neurologic development that at least can, you know, see and smell and taste, you know, to, to a certain degree, um, then all of a sudden to be pushed through that and then not have that chemical um, electrical connection with the mother where they're back in the arms, they're suckling the, the, you know, the breast and, you know, they're feeling the heartbeat and sensing the breath. You know, I think some of that, I mean, it, it's, I think it's very difficult, you know, to, to study, but some of the studies in infants, you know, do look at how it calms their heart rate, you know what I mean? To go through that and suddenly be faced with this, just like, it's cold, it's wet, it's bright, it's dry, it's what's going on, you know, and then to never have that heart rate or that anxiety calmed by the mother. Um, it, it seems to me that Kay has considered the possibility of the primal wound and and we come to different conclusions about this but i mean some birth mothers do have the do do that with their infant and then give it up after a few days if there's very different experiences and many birth mothers if particularly if they're young may have been had been traumatized may have used drugs may have drank who knows, you know, so it's, I think that the prenatal environment 
is problematic. And then I agree with you that after they're born, but then there's very different experiences. Like Marco wasn't in a nursery with bright lights. He was with a, a sort of a, a mother who did suckle him, not his birth mother, but another, you know, substitute mother uh, before he got on the, they got put him on the plane and he came here. So I, I don't know. I just, but, and, you know, but I also don't, most adoptees don't become addicts, but it, but I did find research in behavioral genetics that having that trauma of child sexual abuse or, or whatever it was is, is correlated with more, more addiction. I'm interested in exploring this a little bit with you, Kay. Okay. So if it is the case that, um, yeah, yes, it's possible, as you recognize, that there is this relinquishment trauma for some people, but not necessarily all people. Um, is that enough to explain the overrepresentation that we see in psychiatric clinics and in addiction treatment for adoptees and the four times greater uh, risk of suicide attempts than non-adoptees? Can, can we, can we, I mean, does that does that disturb your conclusions at all? Because the alternative is that every, all adoptees are more likely to have a genetic inheritance that puts them at risk for things like psychiatric care and addiction care and suicidality. So how do you square those things up? Well, that can be prenatal and genetic predisposition that they get from the birth parents who obviously if the birth parents give up the child, then they're, they're, they don't have a stable family. They're not, well, I mean, in an earlier era, middle-class single mothers gave their kids up. Now, uh, since feminism and since Roe v. Wade, a lot of middle-class you know, become single mothers and 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 if and have support have uh, extended family support. So who gives? Who's available for adoption? From what background? Um, so you're, you're suggesting that there might be a selection effect that mm -hmm. people who end up being adopted are more likely to have come from gen genetic backgrounds that would put them at higher risk for ending up on psychiatric couches and in addiction treatment later in life. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, but you know, certainly what about all of the, I mean, there is a higher incidence of adoptees in these things, but the vast number of adoptees are not there, are not in psychiatric care, are not alcohol yes. addictions. Yeah, and that's true. That's also true of veterans and PTSD. Not everybody yeah. who experiences combat has long lasting traumatic um, you know, manifestations. Yeah. So yeah. most people, don't have shell shock or however we want to phrase it. But that's not to say that the people who go to combat aren't at higher risk yes. for PTSD. Yes, I agree that, you know, what I call psychological loss of various kinds makes uh, adoptees more like, more at risk, as you said. Uh, and, but it isn't just birth trauma. There's all kinds of other issues, particularly for when transracial and transnational adoption. Like I said, the vast majority of my life, I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Adoption was never bothered me until I, you know, until I looked up and I thought, oh, wow, 
it has affected me, you know? Um, And it's, you know, that's, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, the fog and, you know, coming out of the fog, you know, that realization of, you know, I was fine. My parents were great. Everything was wonderful. Oh, oh, wait a minute. No, there, you know, I said like, there's, you know, so like I said, it's just, it's interesting And, and where it starts, you know, I, I also ended up very much like my birth mother and very much like my birth father. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's confusing. It's, you know, what, perce- you know, I was, I was trying to think through, you know, what percentage of me is Joyce, what percentage is Larry and what percentage is my Italian family. I, I would have, you know, a different what percent is you individually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, but you know, we don't completely understand biological ch- children. I mean, when I adopted, it was like an adopt as an adoptive parent. I'm no different than a biological fa- parent, and that an adoptive family is exactly no different from a biological family. That was in the late 1970s, and I don't think we believe that anymore. We know that, you know. So, but without sort of saying, you know primal wound, we do know that an adoption and an adoptive family is not just like a biological family, that there are real differences. And the more those differences are, you know, are stated and known, and the more that adoptive parents and birth parents can say that they're both having an impact on this individual, um, I think the, the clearer it is. We're not, we're no longer with the, that uh, adoption is wonderful, but I don't want to go to say adoption is terrible. It's always terrible and that we should have no adoption, which some adult adoptees now say. And um, because some, you know, some kids can't be cared for. There's kids, we don't want kids in orphanages and institutions, I don't think. Um, But we don't want to say it's just wonderful and that every adoptive family is wonderful. I don't want to miss the point that um, your book, um, among other things, offers a a pathway, something to do, a way forward. And Mm -hmm. that is um, to do our best to leverage the lessons learned through the decades spent in, in behavioral genetic studies and apply them to adoptive families to um, enlighten uh, prospective parents, maybe particularly, that there are things that they could look out for in order to better the odds for their kids being well-adjusted in their new environment. Mm -hmm. And so I I think that's an important contribution of your book to say, look, there's something that can be done that we should pay attention to. Mm -hmm. We don't have all the answers from it, but it certainly points to some real possibilities. Thank you. Yeah, and like I said, I would I I would uh, would agree wholeheartedly. I'm not anti-adoption either. Um, I'm just I'm you know I was of the you know adoption is rosy and it was great and it was wonderful. Um, you know I started off that and it probably wasn't until until my 40s till I started seeing that you know there was some some effect of it. You know when I found my birth mother and then started you know opening up Pandora's box that you know and having a second a second view on it. Um, where I started considering that it wasn't so wonderful. So I, I do agree. And, 
um, you know, I'm not anti-adoption, but it's also, I realize it's also not rosy, but these are the issues we need to discuss, you know, like, is it, is it better, is it better for a, a child to have, you know, contact with their, with their birth families? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes the birth parents don't want it or it's too hard for the yeah. birth parents. So mm -hmm. thinking back on, on your story, your book, your experience, since you've written the book, and the adage that's guiding our discussion today. What have you learned about apples falling from trees? I started out thinking that nurture was everything. And I ended up thinking that nature was quite a lot, but that nurture was also important. And especially in the title of the subtitle of my book is Untangling Nature and Nurture. But in fact, I retangle them. And I found that that genes, that the environment can affect genes and, and even can be carried over to the next generation in this process called epigenetics, but that, um, and that a genetic predisposition can affect some of the choice of environment that, that adoptees or that any child makes. Um, so, you know, environment and nature and nurture are intertwined and tangled together. And behavioral genetics untangled them a bit to show how they're retangled. Yeah, it's, it's a really important point that it's not either or, but yeah. the two working in concert. And then we have to add in the element of chance on top of and that. Of and maybe of free will and of choice also. As, as yes, as Jack puts in his, his yeah. narrative, right. Well, Kay, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Yeah, Kay, that was that was great. I mean, I love how we can. Uh, um, I don't think we're disagreeing. I think we're, um, you know, we're agreeing. But it just, you know, hitting every corner of this discussion is is right. difficult. And you're right. right. You you. I could argue. I could argue either point. You know. Our guest today was E. K. Trimberger. Her book is Creole Son, An Adoptive Mother Untangles Nature and Nurture. Thank you so much, Kay. Thank you. Tell me one more story. Can you go all the way back to Richmond around then? Before you knew what was possible, and there's a relic in your old hands. It's strong words to fight with. I think we should walk away I saw you through the glass door And I was acting on my best behavior Trying to navigate us home Spark a fire with crumbled paper Settle down, spend time Doesn't like the fireworks All those explosions in the sky make it Paranoid is nature Take a bottle from the back room 
negotiate a fair price just to try and get away with it. I think he was just being nice, and I was acting on my best behavior. Oh, 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 oh. Trying to. 